Well, please, if you've closed your Bibles, please open them back up again to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. So we're in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. I trust that everyone can hear me. The microphone is working. Yeah? Yeah? Okay, very good. I'm seeing some nods. Um, that's a good thing. Um, why don't I pray? And then we'll get into God's Word. Let's pray together. Loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. Given the way we've treated you, you could so easily have thumbed your nose at us, estranged us from yourself, left us on our own, left us to go to hell. And yet, Father, in your great mercy, you chose not to. You chose to reveal yourself to us in the Gospel. And yet, Father, when we look at the Gospel, it's not as we expect it to be. It's surprising. In fact, to many onlookers in our world, it looks ridiculous, foolish, stupid. And yet we know that in the Gospel is your power for salvation. Father, as we come to dwell on the Gospel today, we pray, build our confidence in this message, this community, our teachers, as we live out what looks like a foolish message and yet is actually the power of God for salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to let me take you on an imaginary drive around your area or your district. You're driving in your car and as you drive down a country road, you see a farmer working in his field. You know this farmer. He's absolutely as tough as nails. He's a good enough bloke. He's a good guy. And yet you've spoken to him in the past and he's hard. He's had a hard life. He's got a hard job. And on the rare occasions when you've had a chance to share with him the hope that you have in Jesus, well, he's been hard to that too. Well, you drive on. You come out of the country and you come into town and it happens to be a Saturday afternoon and as you're driving down the main street of Deloraine or La Trobe or Devonport or Smithton or wherever you live, you can't help but notice that on either side of the road there are young people not doing anything, just standing around. Twos and threes, maybe a skateboard here or there, cigarettes dangling out of the mouth. But the overwhelming impression you get of them as you see them is just how aimless they look. Don't they have things to do? Are they relaxing from a job during the week? Well, you think probably not. They just seem to be going nowhere. Well, you drive through town and it's so depressed you, to be honest, you go for a drive to one of the nicer parts of your area. You drive past one of the grand old homes of the district, a place where what in the English countryside might be called the landed gentry live. These people aren't aimless. No, they're all twin sets and Range Rovers. 
These were people whose farms are measured in thousands of acres, not hundreds or tens. Let me ask you a question. What would it take to turn those three people into the kind, gentle, self-sacrificial people who care about others more than they do themselves? What would it take to see that hard-of-nails farmer down on his knees in prayer in church each Sunday? What would it take to take those young, aimless people you see on your street and fill them with passion and drive to serve their communities? What would it take to get the landed gentry, if I can put them like that, the upper crust of your region, to start shedding their superior separate airs and to start mixed with the hoi polloi like you and me? It would look incredible, wouldn't it? Surely only a force of immense power would be able to bring about change like that in the lives of people like that. Well, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that this power has already been released into the world, the Gospel. As Christians, I believe, I presume rather, that that's what you believe too. God has given us the power we need to turn Tasmania into a town or rather into a state of forgiven, renewed, loving people in the gospel. It's right there in verse 18, isn't it? For the message of the cross is the power of God. But here's the problem. Although the gospel may be the power of God, it doesn't look like the power of God. If anything, it doesn't look powerful at all, does it? It looks foolish. Have you ever thought what the Gospel actually asks you to believe? That all the problems of the world, political, social, sexual, personal, have their ultimate solution in the death of an Israeli peasant 2,000 years ago? I mean, how could that ever convince anyone? Can you imagine taking that message to your hard-as-nails farming neighbour and asking him to be convinced by that. Well, the gospel may be the power of God, but frankly to most people in our lives it just seems foolish. And where the gospel does, by some miracle, take hold somewhere, well, it only seems to form communities of unimpressive people. It's not the high flyers and the up-and-comers who fill our churches, but very ordinary people, old ladies, Mums and dads, kids. In fact, not just, not just ordinary people, often on occasions quite odd people fill our churches, don't they? If the gospel is the power of God to change the world, why does it seem to bypass anyone of any importance and attract only nobodies and oddballs? The church seems foolish. And the heralds of this gospel, far from being pillars of our community, certainly anymore, are completely unknown to the general public. If you asked anyone in the street, who is the captain of the Australian cricket team? Actually, let me ask you that. Hands up here, who knows who's the captain of the Australian cricket team? Come on, we've got to have... Okay, up the back there. It has to to be... 
there's a smith talking to a smith about a smith. I, this this day is going to go well. I can see it already. It's Steve Smith. Everyone knows who the, who the captain of the Australian cricket team is. Now let me ask you another question. If I ask someone in the street, who is the minister of St Luke's Anglican Church La Trobe? I wouldn't have a clue. In fact, I can guarantee if you drop a list of all of the careers for a school leaver at school that they could do, pastor or minister is not going to be up the top, is it? It's going to be right down the bottom. But if the cross is the power of God, why are preachers not household names instead of nobodies? Preachers seem foolish. You see, if we're honest... When we put all of this together, it makes us wonder if God actually has the power to change anything. If we're honest, it seems there's actually nothing less likely to change Tasmania than the cross. The cross is a foolish message which only fools believe, preached by fools. But don't be fooled. Because no matter how foolish or unimpressive it looks, the cross of Christ is still the power of God. In fact, far from having made a terrible mistake, God has deliberately made the cross and its people and its preachers seem foolish so that his power might be even more powerfully revealed. So as you prepare for another year of trying to change and transform your area, your town, urging people to come under the sound of the gospel and turn to Christ, I'm going to urge you today just to do one thing, to keep relying on the cross for all of your success. That's all today is really about. If you can't stay for the rest of the talks, well, you've basically heard it right there. What am I going to urge you to do today? Well, it's what Paul urges us to do. Rely on the cross of Jesus for all of your success. It may seem foolish, but it is the power of God for those who are being saved. And we're going to look at this fact over the three sermons today. We're going to look at the foolish gospel, the foolish church and the foolish preacher. And right now, at the moment, we're going to look at the foolish gospel. And I've just got two points. They're there in your outlines with some sub-points there as well to help us along. And the two points are simply this, that the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Let's dive right on into it, into our first point, foolishness to the perishing. There's nothing more divisive than the gospel. It divides the world into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's the very first point that Paul makes in this passage, that to the perishing the cross is foolishness. Look there at the first part of verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It just seems ridiculous. Now what is it about the cross that people do find so foolish? Well, Paul gives us a hint there in verses 22 to 23. Look at them with me. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Let's take those two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one at a time as we begin to unpack this. What does he say about the Jews? Well, he says the Jews 
demands signs. Now, what does he mean by signs? Well, by signs, he means miracles, uh, literally works of power. Now, for example, you see this kind of demand for signs from the Jews of Jesus' day and Paul's day all the way in the New Testament. We'll just have a look at John's Gospel. Take, for example, John chapter 6. It's a passage you'll be familiar with. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus tells the crowd there that he's been sent by God to give them eternal life and that they can have it if they'll believe in him. But the crowd won't take his word for it. What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Verse 30 of John 6. And then he gives them a a miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, but then they ask him to repeat that miracle. You see, for the Jews of Jesus' day to trust that Jesus was the Christ, they have to see some miraculous proof. And that's because of what the Old Testament had led the Jews to expect the Christ to do. Miracles, works of power. You read a passage like Daniel chapter 7, which describes the Son of Man descending from the clouds in glory and you expect that when the Christ comes, he'll do the same. I mean, in some ways you can't really blame them, can you? I mean, take for example, if, if, you, if you're at a, 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 your grandchild's uh, birthday party and a shifty looking man turns up claiming to be the magician, well, you're going to want to see him pull a few rabbits out of a few hats before you trust him, aren't you? Well, you say you're a magician, let's see some tricks. Well, it's the same for the Jews. But it's not just the same for the Jews. It's the same for lots of modern day equivalents. People search for spiritual experiences to work out if a claim about God is true or not. Visions, intense emotional responses, dramatic instances of guidance in decision making and the list could go on. The people in the 21st century and the people in the 1st century are maybe looking for different types of sign but in the end they both want the same thing. Power. We want to see that Jesus can do something and do something spectacular for us. But friends, the cross doesn't deliver Jews and it doesn't deliver us power. It gives us weakness. And the cross is a humiliating death. It is, when you think about it, really the very opposite of a miracle. And when the thieves on the crosses next to Jesus ask Jesus to perform a miracle, to pull one last rabbit out of a hat, if you like, by saving himself and getting down from the cross, that's the one thing that Jesus refuses to do. And that's a problem if you're a first century Jew. The way Paul puts it is, it's a stumbling block. Because for a first century Jew, the idea of a crucified Christ makes about as much sense as describing a round square. Deuteronomy chapter 21 couldn't be clearer. Anyone hung on a tree is cursed by God. And you can't be God's Christ and be cursed by him at the same time. That's exactly the problem that the early church faced when they began to evangelise their Jewish friends and neighbours. Uh, In the 2nd century AD, 
a, a popular Jewish, uh, rather Christian apologist or, or defender of the faith, a guy called Justin Martyr, uh, many of you will have heard of him, was trying to convince a bloke called Rabbi Trifo uh, Jesus, Messiah, um, or rather Rabbi Trifo, that Jesus was the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. But the rabbi writes back with this response. Sir, these and such like passages of scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honour and glory, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. Well, it's the same for us in the 21st century. The Christianity of the Bible is unspectacular. It doesn't offer huge emotional power or spiritual experience. It doesn't offer us anything that looks powerful or extravagant. It just offers us a dead man on a cross. And so it seems foolish. Jews and many of our neighbours look for power. Greeks look for wisdom. The Greeks or the Gentiles, just anyone who's not a Jew, are not after signs in the same way as the Jews are. Instead, they wanted human reason, their intellect, to be the guide to knowing God. Now, you see a great example of that in Acts chapter 17. You all know the story. Paul goes to Athens to preach the gospel and he gets an eager audience in front of a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And they say this to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like my university days. Well, the key thing here is that they wanted to work out God for themselves, to contact him on their own human terms by human reason, not have God contact them on his terms. And again, what was true in the first century, I think, is also true in ours. There are lots of 21st century equivalents of this. The philosophy student who comes to university, determined to nut out who this God is, preferably in the first year, even better by the end of first semester. The scientist who decides that they, if they can't find evidence for God in the place they want to look for it, the natural world, then they can't believe that there's a God there at all. You see, yet again, just as for the Jews and for our century, so too with the Greeks in our century. We all want the same thing, to come to God on our terms. We want human wisdom to be the path to enlightenment. But yet again, the cross disappoints us in that respect because it doesn't deliver Greeks or us wisdom. Rather, it delivers us what looks like stupidity and shame. I'm not sure if as modern people, particularly as modern Christians, we can quite comprehend just how disgusting the cross was to an ancient pagan. I mean, obviously it was painful. We all get that it was painful. I'm not sure we get just quite how painful it was. 
A victim of crucifixion was routinely flogged, really within an inch of their life. Many never actually made it to the cross themselves before they died. If they did survive their flogging, they had to carry the crossbar of their cross, called the patabullum, to their execution site, where they were stripped naked, their hands were tied and nailed, and they were hauled up a pole. Their feet were then nailed to the cross, and they would then hang there until they died of asphyxiation. You effectively drown in the fluid that builds up in your own lungs. And if that sounds painful, remember this, it could sometimes take up to three days to kill you. The Roman method of execution called uh, crucifixion was so painful they actually had to invent a whole new word to describe it. Excruciating. It was incredibly painful. But it was also incredibly shameful. One of the whole ideas of crucifixion was it was meant to act as a deterrent against the kind of crimes which got you there in the first place. Bodies weren't taken down immediately. They were much more likely left to be left up there, still naked and, and often left to rot. The Roman historian and uh, senator Cicero said this about it. He said, Crucifixion was a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes and his ears. You see, the cross might not have the same impact for us now as it did for Gentiles then. But the truth is the same. There's nothing very clever looking about a crucified man. You don't look at a man on a cross and say, he's clearly made some good decisions in his life. Oh, hasn't life worked out well for him? Now, if you're hanging on a cross, whether you're looking at it face to face in the first century or looking it back from today, you know you've hit rock bottom. If this is how God wants to communicate, if this is what he is really like, a man on a cross, then most people will want nothing to do with him. We'll make our own way to God or not at all. You see, the fact is that the cross looks foolish to everyone, Jews and non-Jews, because it seems neither powerful nor clever. It's not what anyone wants. To be honest, to most people, if this is all God has to offer, it would seem like his attempt to communicate with us still less save us, has been an abysmal failure. But it's not a failure. In fact, the foolishness of the cross is utterly intentional. It is no accident that people find the cross foolish. Rather, that's exactly what God intended. Look there at verse 19. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached 
to save those who believe. You see, those who are perishing find the cross foolish because God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise and he's frustrated the intelligence of the intelligent. That's verse 19. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, what does Paul mean here by when he says that the wisdom of the world is foolish? Well, what he means is that the wisdom of the world doesn't work in helping people to know God. Look at verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. The wisdom of the world isn't foolish in the sense that it sounds unintelligent. I mean, to the contrary, some of it sounds very intelligent. He's not saying that all human beings are without any help on their own resources. No, the Bible is full of information about how capable humans are of understanding lots of things. There's a, there's a whole um, body of literature in the Bible called the wisdom literature, Proverbs and Psalms and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes, all about how we can know stuff off our own back. Now, he's not talking about that. He's not slamming universities or schools or books. No, he's just saying that there's a limit to human wisdom. He's saying that human wisdom can discover how to make an engine or how to farm well, but it just can't go far enough to find God. And in fact, if anyone purely off their own bat does say that they've found God, well, you can guarantee that the God they've discovered isn't the God who exists. Human beings simply cannot find the real God under our own steam, work out God for ourselves. And if ever you needed any proof of that, you only need to look at the vast array of human attempts at doing exactly that. If God really were discoverable by human beings under our own steam, wouldn't all our world religions look the same? And yet they don't. They look so incredibly different. Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they all have vastly different ideas of who God is. So human wisdom, when it comes to discovering who God is, can't be a very reliable method. You see, that's what makes Christianity unique. That God talks to us and finds us, not the other way around. C.S. Lewis, the famous scholar at both Cambridge and Oxford, um, uh, walked in on a debate in a drawing room. I love the idea of this. I just imagine all of these people sitting around in tweed jackets, smoking a pipe, uh, in front of a roaring fire with a glass of port or sherry or maybe whiskey if they're feeling daring and, uh, and they're having a grand debate and the grand debate that these Oxford dons are having around their crackling fire sucking on their pipes is what exactly makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world and all sorts of ideas were being posited. Well, perhaps it's the idea of God becoming a man. Well, Christianity does have that but so do actually lots of other religions. Other religions have incarnation myths. Well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the resurrection. Maybe it's that that's the unique part of the Christian faith. Well, but some other people were quick to point out as they sucked on their pipes, no, that's not true either. The Egyptian religions, for instance, have some kind of a concept of their gods being reborn and resurrected. Anyway, Lewis walks in and they all turn to him and say, Lewis, you're a Christian, why don't you tell us We've been having a debate. What is the one distinctive thing about Christianity that sets it apart from all other world religions? 
And without blinking an eye, he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And they realised he was right. The gospel isn't human beings reaching up and finding God. We can't. It's God reaching down and finding us. You see, the gospel, for that reason, is really the very opposite of religion. And it seems clear that it is the opposite of religion. Because honestly, when you read the pages of the New Testament, who would make this up? If you were a religious snake oil salesman trying to produce a marketable product, trying to sell a new religious package into the already packed religious market, you wouldn't come up with a cross. Because frankly, it just looks stupid. Why would you do it? It just does not look like anything that a human being has made up out of the top of their head. And yet that's precisely why God in his wisdom has made the gospel look so left field. You see, the real wisdom is that God ensures that humans can't reach him on their own because if we could, wouldn't that show that we were in control when the very nature of the gospel is to say, no, you have lost control, disastrously lost control and only I can help you. The cross looks stupid to the perishing, both Jew and Greek. People wanting signs or to make their own way to God. But far from being a mistake, the fact that the cross looks foolish is actually a divine masterstroke because it ensures that human beings know exactly where we stand with God, that we can only come to him on his terms and that, that when we found God on the cross, we can be sure that we've found the real God, not a fake one, because no one in their right mind would ever make up the God of the crucified Jesus. Gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But secondly, and as we close, it is also the power of God to those who are being saved. You see, that's precisely why the message of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Look there at verse 18 again. It is, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or verse 24, he says it the same way. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the cross is the power of God because it's actually how we do know God. It doesn't look very clever, but it actually works. I don't know if you've ever seen two different types of sportsmen or sportswoman on a field. Um, when I went to school, uh, there was a chap on my hockey team uh, who had, well, you'd, the expression I'd use now kindly to refer to him is he had all the gear but no idea. You ever seen those people? They have all the latest kit. All of their stuff is shining and it looks like it's never been used. 
to be honest. His skills looked like they'd never been used either, but he had all the stuff, but he couldn't actually play the game. Contrast that with another guy on my hockey team who had the most beat-up gear imaginable. I think he only had one shin pad, this really beat-up old stick, and he kind of had a really sort of beaten-up ball that he used to play with. He's the best player on the team. Looks can be very deceiving. Well, that's what makes the cross the power and wisdom of God. If you want to know God, even though it doesn't look very impressive, even though Jesus' gear doesn't look very shiny, he actually knows what he's doing. If you want to know God, you actually can, through the cross. The cross, if you like, is God's address. If you want to find him in the phone book, you want to look him up on Google Maps, if you're driving around town trying to find God's house, that's where you'll find him. On the cross. That confounds people because it's not what they expected God to be like. We expect God to be so much grander and more glorious than that, don't we? We never thought that glory would be so bloody. But what looks like shame is actually the most glorious thing imaginable. Robert Key was a British soldier who was stationed during the Second World War in the north of France in a town called Anazin. Robert died on the 5th of September 1944. The military inquest which followed his death held that he died as the result of a stupid stunt. He had been showing off a live grenade to a group of young children, showing off in front of them, when it accidentally blew up in his face, costing him his life and risking the children theirs. Well, the family were absolutely disgraced. And for 50 years, they actually refused to talk about Robert or the incident at all. So shameful was it to their family name. All that went on for 50 years until in 2009 the Key family received a telephone call from the mayor of Anazin who had called to tell them that they were going to name a street after Robert. You see, it turns out that the inquest at the time had actually misinterpreted some key witness statements. Robert, who had been on patrol on his own, hadn't actually been fooling around with a grenade at all. Rather, he had seen a live grenade which a young child had picked up. And rather than let it explode, Robert raced over, snatched it from the child's hands, clutched it to his chest, turned his body as a shield to the children and let it detonate killing himself and saving two dozen children. He was a hero. The man who had looked like his family's shame was actually their glory. Who could know that glory could look so bloody Friends, that is the cross. 
not shame, but glory. Because it shows us what God is really like. A man who will clutch hell to his chest and let it detonate so we might not feel its blast. And it's in that sacrifice that lies the power of God to those who are being saved. Friends, the gospel is the cross. It's in the cross that the power of God is to save people save the people in your town to save the people in your area it is the cross that will melt the heart of the hard as nails farmer give purpose to the aimless youth give the landed gentry the joy of their creator and not just his creation it is the cross that has the power to turn Tasmania into a state of glorious people It is the cross that is the good news that we have to share with our neighbours, our family and our friends. So if you haven't got this point already, get it now. Don't shift from preaching the cross. The cross is the gospel. Let's flip that on its side. What that means is that if you're not preaching the cross, then you're not preaching the gospel. Now I know that might seem like a strange thing. Well, of course I'll preach the cross but it's actually very tempting not to because it doesn't look exciting or powerful or clever. Just like in the city, life's hard in the country. I know I grew up here. I remember growing up here as a young person, seeing lots of young people leave for cities and towns, interstate for more exciting razzle-dazzle places. The rates on depression in rural areas, particularly for young men, are astonishing. Rural areas have higher levels of depression. They have higher levels of poverty than in the cities. Isolation and loneliness are problems for older people, particularly those who can no longer drive across large distances. In this climate, in your climate, there will be a subtle temptation to offer something more exciting, more razzle-dazzle, something that seems an appealing alternative to the lives of the people around you. For people who are bored or depressed or lonely, in your heart you may feel that the cross might just be a little bit too drab, a little bit too basic to win converts. But don't. Because the cross is the power of God to save sinners. By all means, show people how exciting a life is when it's lived for Jesus. But rely on the cross. As I said before, I I grew up in Deloraine, just down the road here. And I grew up in a church that didn't have a youth group. Um, Well, thankfully, someone started a youth group. And it was great. It was really good fun. But once it was started up, 
we tried to attract people with fun. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with fun. I love fun. I mean, by, we all love fun, don't we? That's, that's why you call it fun. You wouldn't call it fun otherwise, you'd call it something else. Misery. Of course you like fun. I like fun. We all like fun. Look, we're having fun here, aren't we? But it worked for a little while, but it didn't last. And within a couple of years, the youth group had petered out. Do you know why? Because we never preached the cross. We never studied the Bible. We never looked at the joy of real life in Jesus. We just had movie nights. But I can see where my youth group leader was coming from. It was tempting because it was a small town. There's not much going on. Let's get something really fun for the kids. I'll tell you what, I'm still grateful to that young man. But gosh, I wish he taught me the cross because then I might have found not just fun but joy. You see, the cross is the power of God to bring salvation. Paul opens his letter to the Romans with these words, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Too right it is. So let's preach the gospel, which is to say... Let's tell people about the glory and the wisdom and the power of the foolish-looking cross. Our time's up. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you don't always give us what we want or what we look for. Uh, that might be power. That might be wisdom. But you do give us what, you, what we need. You give us salvation, a way to actually know you. Father, thank you for that. And we thank you that you do it deliberately. If we'd been able to figure you out for ourselves, well, then that would just be another thing that we could congratulate ourselves about. But the whole point of the Gospel is that we're not to congratulate ourselves, that we're in trouble and we need your help. So thank you that although the cross looks foolish to those who are perishing, to those who by your grace are being saved, we know it works. It gives us new life. It saves us from hell. It grants us joy. Father, when we are tempted to lose confidence in this foolish-sounding message, help us to remember that it is in the cross that there is the power to transform the lives of us and the lives of those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.